Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Cameron Winery with John Paul, and it's June 28th, 2018, and we're out in the vineyard. And John and Paul, we'll start you off with a question, uh, why wine? Why wine? That's, that's a good question. Um, I think long ago I just fell in love with the beverage when I was living in Northern California, and that was just, I was at UC Berkeley postdocing, and we started, you know, going out in the afternoon at the end of the day and having a glass of wine and then I had a friend who was growing wine grapes in Lake County and it's one of those things that just sucks you in and for all these years I've watched innumerable people getting sucked into it. There's just, I don't know what it is about wine and growing grapes but yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things and and from the time I was a little kid I always wanted to be a farmer so it was kind of like high-end farming, I guess, in a way. Sure. Yeah. So let's back up how you were at UC Davis, but not there for wine reasons. So why were you at UC Davis? I was not at UC Davis, I at UC Berkeley. Oh, UC Berkeley, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, yes. Um, I, I come from the um, Jacques Cousteau generation. And, um, and that means he was like the guy when I was a kid, you know, in high school and college. And when I grad, I graduated from University of Colorado, and um, I was accepted in the marine biology graduate program at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. And my idea always was I would figure out a way to kind of farm the sea, you know, do that. And so I went into basic research, got a doctorate in marine biochemistry, microbiology, and I was working with primary producers, which is diatoms in my case, but um, unicellular algae, which are the main primary producers in the ocean. You know, and that food chain goes up from the diatoms on up. And so I was working with them and, and, and I loved it. Being at Scripps was great. I would go on oceanographic cruises. I got um, certified as a scuba diver, so I would go on all these cruises off the south coast of Mexico collecting various things. In my case, it was more working with a guy that was getting um, chemicals, biochemicals out of various marine organisms for pharmaceutical purposes. And a lot of that research is still going on. Um, at any rate, while I was at Scripps, um, I met a guy at a seminar who was given a seminar up at the Salk Institute because that whole area around Scripps and La Jolla is just this cauldron of really cool academic mm-hmm. um, stuff going on. And, and the guy that I met, his name was Melvin Calvin, and he had won a Nobel Prize in chemistry for elucidating the dark reactions of photosynthesis. In other words, the way a plant takes CO2 out of the air, the way this leaf here absorbs CO2 and turns it into sugars. He figured that out because he came on the end of the 
Manhattan Project and there was all this radioactive stuff around at the end of World War II and so he figured out that you could use carbon-14, which was a byproduct of that, so radioactive carbon, as a tracer element. And so the Nobel Prize was actually not for figuring out how CO2 um, was turned into sugar, but more for the concept that he was the first guy to use a radioactive tracer element to, to figure out how metabolism worked. Um, and so I ended up he, he asked me, um, I started talking to him after the seminar, asking him questions, and he asked me if I'd like to come work in his lab. <laughs> I have no idea, you know, how that came about, but I went, yeah. <laughs> that, I probably, at that time in my life, I probably said, fuck yeah. <laughs> but anyway, because I mean, you know, working with Melvin Calvin, UC Berkeley, you're in this amazing lab. And so I went there, and I was there for three years, and I was doing all this research in the lab, but while I was there, I fell in love with wine, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was coming down to that thing in academia where you actually have to get a real job as opposed to being like a postdoc where somebody's paying you and you get to do whatever you want. And all of a sudden, what I see in front of me is assistant professorship, which is knowing at that point in my life, a lot of those people in those positions is a huge amount of work and you're spending a lot of time writing grants in science in order to get funding to do the research you want to do and pretty soon you're not doing the research anymore you're writing grants for other people to do the research and the research to me is what was fun so I I was at this crossroads like do I really want to do this or not and then at the same time, I'm making wine in a guy's garage in Berkeley and you know it just sounds like a you know famous old story and it probably is and going up into wine country and one day I just I, in fact I remember exactly when it was I was up cross-country skiing with my dog in the Sierra Nevadas and I was by myself I was out snow camping and we were gliding down through these trees um, up near Echo Summit and all of a sudden it just came into my mind I went I could be a winemaker and you could grow grapes so I'd get both the farming part and I'd be able to make wine which is really fun and when I got back to Berkeley I just told everybody that's what I was gonna do and you know the rest and so then then it was a matter of okay how do I do this so John Paul being John Paul decides well let's see I know there's this famous winemaker Robert Mondavi named Zelma Long I'll just go up and ask her for a job why not <laughs> so I go up and I meet Zelma Long and she's really cool and at this time and this is 1978 or 9 and she says you know yeah I could hire you for harvest but it would be boring stuff and she goes I think the future's in Oregon. And this is back when there's almost nothing going on in Oregon. There's David Ladd and Irene, a few other people. And I go, yeah, okay. <laughs> so through friends in academia, I find there's a guy up here who's making wine for Sokoblos, who used to be in academia, a guy named Bob McRitchie. Mm -hmm. And so I get hold of him and he says, yeah, come and you can come and do harvest. So I show up up here. And I basically worked for free, and so at 
the end of harvest, I was economically like pretty much done. But my dad being kind of cool and, and a bit shocked that I had taken all of this education and suddenly I'm, you know, making wine. Um, Asked, tells me that he really needs their house painted in Los Angeles. And this was a way of shoveling money to me, but you know, not just giving me money. So, you know, saving my pride a little bit. So I went and did that. And then I took a job in Lake County, California, working in the vineyard. I was the only um, Anglo in the vineyard. And it was one of the great experiences of my life, frankly, working with these Hispanic guys, learning how to prune grapes. And one of the things that I learned that always ended up being super important to me were, was their culture. And one of them is, as you're pruning grapes in the wintertime, at lunchtime, you take a pile of prunings and you get a fire going. And you bring a thermos that has stuff that you can put in a tortilla and you take tortillas, corn tortillas, because they don't really do flour tortillas, they really do masa. And they throw the tortilla on top of the coals, take both sides to heat it up and then you put your stuff in it and that's lunchtime. And, and I learned things like um, when the birds were calling, um, what they were saying and I remember Particularly the one I remember the best was the meadowlark, which which its call is, "Es el tiempo para comer, es el tiempo para comer, es el tiempo para comer." That means it's time, time to, to eat. eat, and um, and so I always, I always had, I always had just I had a great time doing that. I was earning three dollars an hour, um, which was you know starvation wages, and at a certain point I pitched my tent in a friend's yard in Lake County because that was what I could afford to do. Anyway, I make it through all of this and working harvest at a winery in Lake County and then I got, um, I got an opportunity in Napa Valley. They, somebody wanted an assistant winemaker and I had all my background in chemistry and microbiology. Um, so they hired me and I found out later one of the reasons they hired me was because I was one of the only people willing to take the low pay that they were willing to offer me but you know coming from academia where you know I wasn't making much money and then you know pruning for three dollars an hour it was it was a big step up to be offered you know thirteen thousand dollars a year for you know working in this winery um, so I did I started working at this place called Carneros Creek and it turned out by luck because uh, my life tends to run on luck that it was the epicenter of Pinot Noir um, in California and uh, on several different levels. The people that started it had been the main importers for Domaine Romani Conti and other Burgundies in San Francisco and their license allowed them to do a winery. So all of a sudden I was exposed to all these amazing Burgundies while I was there and they had, because of their interest in Burgundy, had started a thing called a clonal test plot which was, they had this grand old professor of viticulture, a guy named Curtis Alley from Davis, and he had gone around California and had collected all the Pinot Noir clones that he can get. And Pinot Noir is a grape variety that tends to mutate, and so it forms all these different clones, different cluster morphologies, different ways they grow, you know, just lots of things about Pinot Noir that makes it really interesting. And 
because everybody loved Curtis Alley, all these people around California all gave him clones from their vineyard. And a lot of them were what are called suitcase clones, which means you put them in your suitcase and you sneak them through customs. And, um, and then others were old clones. In fact, the greater part of them, as it turns out, as I got further into the story, uh, turned out, and I learned this later, turned out to be clones that had been mostly brought in in 1895 into the United States by a guy named Paul Masson, um, who was from Burgundy, and he brought in what was called a Massal with him and planted a, this vineyard called Cresta Blanca in Saratoga, California, south end of the bay. And a Massal is a collection of all these different clones all put together in one vineyard block. And, um, and so a lot of the clones had come that were around California, that was their origin, wow. was, was that vineyard block, um, which I didn't know at the time. I just knew there were all these clones out there. And I'm not even sure Curtis Alley knew this at the time. Um, but anyway, so here's this clonal test plot. I'm getting exposed to all of this amazing Pinot Noir viticulture. I'm learning about Pinot Noir at this winery, and then because Napa Valley, this is early 80s, was kind of the, this cauldron of, of innovation, and it was attracting people from all over the world, um, again, my luck of being in the right place at the right time, there were all these young Burgundian winemakers that were showing up there at harvest time. And they might be working at different wineries, but they would come down to Carneros Creek because that was kind of the epicenter of Pinot Noir and this clonal test plot and stuff that was going on. So I started meeting these guys that were sons of all these famous wineries in Burgundy, becoming friends with them. And then best come on in the world, my wife, who, is, who I meet um, at, she's at San Francisco State, getting a master's degree in chemistry. And I was invited down there to give a seminar on the nose as an analytical instrument, which was more of a excuse for a wine tasting. <laughs> but I did, I gave the seminar and then I gave the wine tasting and then I met Terry, who, um, you know, became the love of my life. She didn't feel the same way about me initially. I had to work real hard to convince her I was as cool as she was. <laughs> um, but one of my great early come-ons to her was, would you like to go to France and visit a bunch of wineries with me? And so we did. We went to Burgundy and I meet all these guys um, in, their, in their wineries. Um, and mostly guys, there weren't a lot of women winemakers in Burgundy at the time. I later met Veronique Druan, she was one of the early ones. Um, but I went, we went over there and I learned all, I tasted all these wines, learned all these techniques that I didn't know then. And tried some of them in California where they didn't work because the climate was, frankly, in retrospect, kind of wrong, mm -hmm. particularly for Chardonnay, the grape that we're sitting in the midst of here. Um, but kept it in my brain for, you know, when I got up here, because I still, at the back of my mind, I still remembered Zelma Long saying, you know, go, instead of go west, young man, it was go north, young man. Oregon is where it's happening. And, and David Ladd up here was making great wine, and um, so that turned out to be, you know, a great influence on what I was doing, um, what I was learning and all that kind of stuff. Sure. 
So when did you make the decision to go to Oregon and how did you go about it? So um, I decided, um, you know, partway through Carneros Creek, um, I'd been there for three years and we were pretty sure we wanted to go to Oregon. By then we had a little girl who had been born in um, 1982, spring of 82, and I made it through the 82 harvest. And then in 83, we went to New Zealand because I was hearing all this stuff about New Zealand as a possible place for Pinot Noir and, and grapes and whatnot. And it was at really its infancy. It was way behind where Oregon was at the time. So we went, so we took off in January and went to New Zealand. We lived down there for, um, we were down there for almost six months and worked at a winery near Auckland. Um, nothing was really going on where it is now for Pinot Noir. Now, down near Queenstown, although we went down to Queenstown on, as part of the trip. Um, you know, kind of explored New Zealand, but realized that it was not quite ready yet. It just wasn't there, and most of their market was export market, which made it difficult to be a small winery, because one of the things that I learned in Burgundy is every time we would go to a really cool winery that was doing kind of what I imagined in my head I wanted to do, work in the vineyard, making the wine, and making a living at it, I would ask them what their size was, how many bottles they made a year. And the number almost invariably came back to 40 to 50,000 bottles a year, which isn't very much. That's, that's like three to 4,000 cases. And I realized three to 4,000 cases was at a point, that's a magic number. You know, that for Pinot Noir, that's a magic number. So realized that we needed to be able to sell a lot of it locally, mm -hmm. so like wholesale, not just export it out of state or out of the country, but be able to sell it locally. And, um, and so New Zealand wasn't really going to work in that regard. So we came back here and that was when we said, okay, we're going to move to Oregon. Actually, I said we're going to move to Oregon. My wife loved living in the Napa Valley. She was set to live there forever. She was teaching chemistry at Napa Valley College. And actually, I was teaching um, enology and viticulture at Napa Valley College. Because of my background in microbiology and biochemistry, it was an easy step to you know, be able to learn all that stuff and, and teach it to young winemakers and vineyardists sure. in the valley. But um, so we got back in uh, summer of 83 and I started preparing for up here, coming up here looking at property and we found this piece. Of, and I had friends up here because when I had worked <clears throat> at Sokol Blosser back in the late 70s, I had friends up here, one of whom was Bill Wayne who had Abbey Ridge Vineyard mm -hmm. that he had planted in 76. And so we were kind of, he and I were kind of working together. He had his vineyard. He was interested in being part of a winery. And um, <clears throat> so we found this piece of property as a place to plant grapes. And so then I went back to my source. I'm still living in California. So fall of 83 and I start, and, and in the winter, I start going around and collecting um, cuttings of all these different clones of Pinot Noir and then later of Chardonnay um, around California, going all over the state, and um, to plant this vineyard here. And while I'm doing all this, uh, one winery that I go to, and this is important, is Hanzel, who's really the first winery that, since Paul Masson 
you know, at the turn of the century to really focus on Pinot Noir. And it was formed by a guy named Hans Zellerbach, who was American ambassador to France, um, I believe during the war. I think he was a Roosevelt appointee. And he came back from there and was in love with Burgundy and, and he had a bunch of money and decided he was going to do this winery above the town of Sonoma. So it was called Hanzel, from his name Hans Zellerbach. And he made a winery that looks like a miniature Clos de Vougeot, the building, which is a famous building. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it's a famous building in, in Burgundy, and, and Clos de Vougeot was a real famous vineyard there. And started planting all of this Pinot Noir. So they had some real interesting clones. So when I went there and met the winemaker Bob Sessions, and he sent me out in the vineyard to get cuttings from a couple of different clones, which I have planted here. And um, when I got done, at the end of the day, I came in and he sat me down and started telling me all this story. And that was when I found out about Paul Masson, brought in these cuttings, and then Paul Masson, um, when Prohibition hit, um, in, when was it, 1919, um, it pretty much devastated him physically and his winery financially. He limped through prohibition making sparkling wine as a medical tonic um, and making some Pinot Noir from himself off this vineyard. But at the end of prohibition, as he's trying to get his feet on the ground, and at that point, the people with all the money buying up all the wineries in California are all of the distillers because the distillers are the former bootleggers mm -hmm. who are bringing stuff across from Canada so they've got all this money. And prime among them was Seagram's which operated out into New York. They were a, they were a bootlegger coming to New York and I'm sure Seagram's going, no, 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 we're a legitimate business now. Now they were bootleggers and that was how they, they got their feet on the ground. That's why they had so much money when Prohibition was repealed. So they were buying up wineries around California and Paul Masson was the most famous winery in California at the time because he was making world-class Pinot Noir and Saratoga because he was from Burgundy, had this Masson, he knew what he was doing and his wines went for a lot of money in San Francisco and in New York. Paul Masson didn't want to sell to him but he was in financial trouble. And then a guy named Martin Ray, who had grown up in Saratoga, steps in with some financial backers and slowly starts buying shares in Paul Masson to keep him going. Hmm. And um, I think by around 1940, and you know, and it's a little hazy, um, I think they ended up owning the winery. And Paul Masson dies in 1943. And right after his death, um, he, so he's resisting Seagram's buying the thing. Right after his death, Seagram's, of course, is trying to get um, now Martin Ray mm -hmm. to sell him the winery. Martin Ray refuses. The winery mysteriously burns to the ground hmm. right after that. And, you know, you can put two and two together and, you know, and there's no absolute proof of who did it, but it was arson and, you know. And so... Um, Martin Ray was forced to sell to Seagram. So Seagram's got the property and the rights to the Paul Masson name. They didn't know how to make wine, so the, and they didn't really have any winemakers who knew what they were doing. So the Paul Masson brand became synonymous with 
kind of crappy wine, frankly. I don't even know if there's still a Palmasson brand out there, but it, it became part of, um, I think at some point it was, it was with Almaden, I think they were together, but they were kind of low end, they became low end California wines. And, um, but what Martin Ray did with the money that he got paid for it was he went out, he knew that the value of this winery was that Masal. He went out and he collected cuttings all through the Masal and in essence took that genetic material from the Masal and moved it up above Saratoga on a vineyard, on a bench land further up above it that became known as Martin Ray Vineyard. Hmm. And at and so there's the Masal planted there, now became you know, known as Martin Ray's Masal. And at some point he lost, he was voted out by all the, because keep in mind he had all these investors. He was voted out by these investors and went down the road and started his own Martin Ray vineyard. And that one that was left with the Masal was, became known as Mount Eden Vineyard. And Mount Eden Vineyard was still there, and it still is there, and they make actually really great Pinot Noir. They also make great Chardonnay because there was also a Massal of Chardonnay that was associated with Cresta Blanc and all of this. Um, so, um, fast forward now back to my conversation with Bob Sessions, and as I'm leaving, he goes, so if you really want to make this vineyard you're doing in Oregon, like, amazing, you need to get you need to go back to the mother block and get clones from that. And I said, I don't know anybody at Mount Eden. And he looks at me and he goes, you know what? If it's meant to happen, trust me, it'll happen. So I kind of went, okay, whatever. <laughs> but my life being the way it is, literally, I drove home from Hansel in Sonoma, down through Napa, back up Napa to Rutherford where I was living. I came into the house. The phone rings, this is before cell phones. I pick up the phone, it's my friend who lives right across the vineyard from me, Ray Corson, who now has a winery called Elise, and he goes, John, you need to come over and meet a friend of mine. You really like this guy. And I went, man, I've been out working in the vineyard all day. I'm kind of wiped out. I, I have to pass. He goes, no, no, no. You gotta come over, have a glass of wine with us. You really like this guy. His name's Jeffrey Patterson. He's the winemaker at Mount Eden Vineyard. And I went, holy crap. So I went, running across the vineyard. I get there, I tell, Je I meet Jeffrey Patterson, I tell him this story and the conversation I just had with Bob Sessions, and Jeffrey looks at me and he goes, we don't ever let anybody get cuttings out of that vineyard, it's kind of sacrosanct. And then he goes, but I can see this is way bigger than I am. He goes, this is too weird. He goes, you need to get cuttings out of the vineyard. And plus he knew I was going, to bumfuck Oregon, so it wasn't going to impact him. Because Oregon at that point wasn't on anybody's radar. So he says, okay, but what you need to do is come back in, this is in December, he says, you need to come back in August and flag vines because there's all kinds of material and some of the vines are really heavily virus and you don't want those. So you can, you know, put flags on things according to cluster morphology and, um, and you know, vigor of vines and that sort of thing, and then come back in the winter and get cuttings off of them. So I did, I showed up in August and I went all through there and I just fanned out in the vineyard and there were little blue flags all over the vineyard that were, you know, my pick for vines. When I came back in December with Bill Wayne, Bill immediately made great friends with Jeffrey Patterson while I'm out getting cuttings in the vineyard and convinces him that we should also get cuttings off of Mount Eden, Chardonnay. 
So we came back with Masals of both things, of the Chardonnay and the bigger one was the Pinot Noir. That was the real, that was the important one. And so a good part portion of Clolectrique Rouge and also a new planting at, that we did at that time up at Abbey Ridge um, called Arley's Leap is with that Masal of grapes from Martin Ray. So when one fell swoop, I moved the, you know, the Masal went from there up, up to here. So I have all this kind of amazing genetic material, both in the Chardonnay and the, and the Pinot Noir. And then you take all the other cuttings that I moved up here from California, from all these wineries, Shalone and Hansel and Joseph Swan and Martini and, and so on. Um, and I put in this pretty amazing vineyard around us. So, um, Clolectrique Rouge and Blanc are basically made from that, those blend, they're old red and white Burgundy clones. And everyone is always kind of going, how are you making these wines with Dijon clones? And I go, well, I, I, it's not Dijon clones. This, this goes back 100 years before Dijon clones, these clones that are, are you know, planted in the vineyard here. And so that's, that's kind of the story of the vineyard and that's what makes the wines here are these clones that um, I kind of lucked into, frankly. <laughs> There's no other way about it, but you know, it's one of those things, luck is one of those funny things that is important, but you also have to be of a mindset to know when you're staring opportunity in the face. And I knew I was staring at this opportunity, so I grabbed it. And I'm also totally aware that at the time I wasn't supposed to be bringing in <laughs> uncertified material into the state of Oregon, but I kind of went, you know, I just have to keep it under wraps until the vineyard becomes really famous and then I can let it be known what it is out there. And the vineyard is now 35 years old and so I figure, you know, the story can be told. Nobody's going to make me rip up Cloelectric because it's considered now one of the most famous vineyards in the state. So that, that's the story of the vineyard. and. The statute of limitations has run out on I, I, I'm declaring it as such, that the statute of limitations has long ago run out. Yeah. So what were your initial impressions of, of the Oregon industry as you moved up here and started to, it started to establish yourself? Well, one of the reasons I think that I came north was, not, I mean, Zelma Long kind of put it in my frame of reference that it was here and happening. But, you know, honestly, um, David Led in particular at Irie, he was the guy that really started Pinot Noir here. He was, he was the influence. He was making great Pinot Noir before I got up here. And it was clear to me from what he was doing that this was, the, this was magic land. And he was in the Dundee Hills, which is why, and Abbey Ridge was in the Dundee Hills because David Lett was there. So we were looking for a place in the Dundee Hills. You know, and of course there are lots of other, we know now, great viticultural areas, especially in the North Willamette Valley for, for doing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. But back in those days, we didn't know. So we really focused on Dundee Hills. And that's, that's mostly what we do now. I mean, in, since then I've discovered Ribbon Ridge. Um, and the great wines being made over there, and so I, I, I grow some stuff in Ribbon Ridge, although I think the ace in the hole for Ribbon Ridge is not as much Pinot Noir, and people over there would hate to hear this, but is Nebbiolo, um, which is kind of a project I've been working on for now um, 25 years, 
and um, and it's a you know the main grape variety of Barolo Barbaresco in northern Italy. Same latitude as we are here. Um, it's uh, climatically, it's very similar to Willamette Valley. They have the Alps. We have the Cascades. They have a coast range. We have a coast range. Um, mean temperature during the day in uh, you know in summertime is like 80 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little warmer at night there than it is here during the summer. So it, it's we're a little bit more like more northern Piedmont than we are Barolo Barbaresco, but Debiolo absolutely works here. And the soil on Ribbon Ridge is so much like particularly Monforte and some great Nebbiolo towns in Piedmont that um, that's that's my that's my ace in the hole. This is Nebbiolo over here where it's really tall. Um, it 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 grows up and it makes Nebbiolo is so difficult to grow and to make wine from it actually makes Pinot Noir seem like a good idea. <laughs> and everyone always says oh, Pinot Noir is the toughest thing around. Now nah, Nebbiolo is tougher in a lot of ways because it's also the first thing that breaks bud in the spring. It is absolutely the last thing to ripen its crop. Pinot Noir is about 100 days from bloom to harvest, full bloom to harvest. Nebbiolo is probably 120 days. Mm. And so it comes really late, so it has to deal with a lot more weather than Pinot Noir does. But that being said, um, we harvest it about the same time here as they harvest in Piedmont. And, um, and it, makes, it makes for some really cool wines. And so now it's just a matter of me generating um, enough press out there for people to start realizing, oh, Nebbiolo, Nebbiolo works here. And that's starting to happen now too, as people, um, people come by the winery and if they know about Barolos and Piedmont Nebbiolos, then I let them try what we're making here. And it almost never fails to elicit a holy, you know, when they try it and put it in front of their nose and they take a sip, they go, holy crap, how'd you do this? And I always say, it's out there. It's, it's not in here as much as out there. Although, although I have to say, you know, all those trips to France for years and years early on before I started the winery and after we started the winery, kind of learning the French Burgundian culture of making wine did not work at all in making Nebbiolo. And the very first Nebbiolo that I made, I showed to a bunch of Italian winemakers and they went, they said basically that the aroma was correct. They go, but what did you do? The mouth, it's completely wrong. Because there's this whole culture of Italian winemaking that's completely, not surprisingly, completely different from French winemaking. So then I had to immerse myself in Italy and Italian culture and making all these trips to northern Italy in particular and meeting winemakers and hanging out there and kind of learning how it how it's done. Because I'm not of the school of reinventing the wheel. I'm kind of of the school that there are people out there that know how to do this, learn from them, and then you can add to that, but you don't need to start from ground zero and try to learn you know, what they have hundreds of years of sure. knowledge of. And so, so Nebbiolo's been a, uh, a cultural learning experience on making that wine, and, and it's made completely differently from Pinot Noir. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So what were your what was the reaction 
to you moving here? I, 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 there was not much industry around, what, you had, but you had some new neighbors. And, and what did they think, and how did you interact? Well, that was, that was interesting. So, of course, California, when I left, it was the attitude back, this is 1984, was more Oregon? You know, and then I got up here, and it was happening in the Dundee Hills, but um, not everybody got it. And when we went to put in the winery, we had to get a conditional use permit because wineries were not, at that point, allowed as an agricultural entity. This is 1984 or 5, keep in mind. And the neighbor right over here, who now has a vineyard, um, took me to court. And the county approved it, so he took the county to court. And so we were helping the county fight them, and he took it all the way up. And he had a good attorney, but in the end, we won the right to have a winery here. And after that, he took out his hazelnuts and planted grapes. <laughs> and, um, and Charlie has since become, he, he's an old guy now. He's probably, God, I bet you Charlie's got to be pushing 80, if, if not there. And we love Charlie. My wife actually has an entire book of Charlieisms. You know, things like middle of winter and it's pouring down rain and he comes walking in. Because he comes over here from time to time just, just to talk. He goes, this weather's only good for rhubarb and ducks. <laughs> you know, that's a Charlieism. And there are lots of them. Um, so he's since become, you know, Oregon being Oregon, you know, when he lost, he kind of saw the writing on the wall and planted vineyard. And then I started helping him with his vineyard. And so, you know, which is the way it ought to be. Um, the people on that side of the fence um, who had been a radio man in the Navy for pretty much his whole life and retired with a Navy pension at age 50-something in the 60s, um, was behind us. He actually showed up at the, at the planning commission meeting. And when I saw him, I knew he was coming. And then I saw the other neighbor and I went, oh man, we are so cooked because I got neighbors on both sides. He gets up to the microphone, and I, I hadn't talked to him, and he goes, we need wineries. Grapes are going to be the thing around here. I can see that. And vineyards are only going to happen if people can process the fruit into wine. So you should absolutely. So he, he saved my ass. Um, Randall Bess was his name. And Randall, from that point, became a really good friend. At a certain point, I approached him about leasing his land. And he, didn't, wasn't, he wasn't interested in dealing with it. And then one day, he shows up at the winery. And the county had come after him because he had cherries on it and hazelnuts, but he wasn't really actively pulling crops off of them. And so he was going to lose his deferred property tax thing. <laughs> so he said, I need to lease you the property, and I need, but I need you to work on it now. So I said, okay. So we worked on a lease with, a, with an option to buy with him and took down the cherries and we left the hazelnuts, took down down below where there was a, the remnants of a walnut orchard and, and put in vineyard. And, um, and then later after he died, then we were able to purchase the property and um, start 
you know, and then at some point my wife said, I tried farming the hazelnuts for a while and one day my wife said, you know, you're pretty good at growing grapes, <laughs> but you really suck as a hazelnut grower because we hadn't gotten any crop off the hazelnuts. So we started taking, the, I gave up on the hazelnuts. We started taking the hazelnuts out and, um, and it has to lie fallow when you take hazelnuts out because they put out uh, toxic stuff into the soil. And so, and I learned this actually in, um, in Piedmont, which is the other big hazelnut producing place in the world outside of Turkey, Turkey, mm -hmm. Piedmont, and, and Oregon. And I learned from those guys that when you take out hazelnuts, you need to let it lie fallow for a couple years before you put in grapes. And so, because this vineyard of Chardonnay, we didn't do that. This was hazelnuts. We took it out and immediately planted it. And it took a long time to come on. So we let the hazelnuts lie fallow when we're planting cover crops up there and have still been engaged in that um, and only then started planting. <clears throat> so we're kind of moving up the hillside with these old burgundy clones of both red and white as, as, we, as we go up the hillside. So that's kind of my wife's and my project is expanding the vineyard. Although I was ready to keep going and the other day she said, look, I mean, you know, with my white hair and everything, she goes, can we just stop and just, you know, leave it where it is and there's still some property up there and somebody else can <laughs> plant that. If our kids get interested in the winery, then, you know, they can, then they have something they can plant. So, yeah, so what you see now is I, I guess this is kind of what we're going to do, although the new deal that's coming um, is because I, I always there are always things going on. You know, if you stop thinking about it, then I figure you're dead, and I'm not ready to die yet, so I'm still thinking about it. Is uh, on the border of the property is is um, an agricultural easement, which was all part of the when we bought the property, we got that as part of it to put in something that would act as kind of a shelter belt there, so that um, to protect us from lawsuits from farming dust and sprays and all that kind of stuff because I've seen, I saw plenty of places in California that where vineyards were sued, you know, for, for farming. And so we decided we needed an agricultural easement in order to put in, um, you know, this shelter belt. And we had hazelnuts there, um, but they've been dying to filbert blight. So we took them out and then have had cover crop there to kind of rejuvenate it. and. Um, <clears throat> and I've been talking to another um, well-known uh, grower here, and this is a guy that sometime you guys should interview, Trevor Baird of Baird Orchards, B-A-I-R-D, and he's fabulous, and his family's been growing fruit here for a really long time, and they grow some of the best fruit, I think, in the Willamette Valley. You see it in Portland, and it's like in the best places, and it's amazing but he's gotten interested in cider apples. So I was asking him, what should we plant up here? And he goes, oh, I've got the perfect thing. It's a cider apple and it doesn't require, it's, it's disease resistant. So you don't have to do any sprays on it. He says, all you have to do is mow. You get it watered and get it going and it'll be fine on its own. And so it's the perfect shelter belt. There'll be, there are no sprays associated with it, but you've got you know, several rows of these trees there to absorb anything from here. And then of course we get cider apples. And my wife wasn't really thinking about that part of it, but as we got to the end of the conversation, I said, so Trevor, um, maybe we could, since you got a bunch of these growing on your place, maybe we should go in on it and we can, you know, 
I know you're making cider, but you know, I can get involved and we can make, maybe we can start making cider here. And my wife just went, oh my God, not another project. <laughs> so cider apples, that's the next, that's the next, the next project here. You know, I figure it's related to turning something with sugar into alcohol, you know, and cider's now like cutting edge type stuff. So away yeah. we go. What the heck? Yeah. So let's talk a bit about your sort of your vineyard philosophy and how, how you've come across it and, and how you why you decided to be a dry farmer mm -hmm. and all, all that kind of how, how did you decide on that and how have you well you know involved? in the very beginning here um, all the vineyards were dry farmed oh she's been rolling in something hasn't she <laughs> that's that's what having a dog is around here when you have chickens and sheep um, so um, and you don't have to edit that out because that's part of the thing here is my 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 stinky dog um, when we started out, everything in Oregon was dry farmed. All, all the vineyards were dry farmed. And I came here, uh, came up here from California, also really fresh in my mind that everything in California had been dry farmed too, until the 70s, when um, there was a tasting in Europe, put on by a guy named Steven Spurrier, that put California on the map. And there was a movie whose name I forget, but it was about um, Chateau Montalina and Gurgic and all these guys had been put on the map and all of a sudden I think that was like the 72 vintage so we're in like mid 70s and so all of a sudden Napa Valley is on the map as is California in general San Francisco's got a lot of money money starts flowing in to Napa Valley putting in vineyards everywhere so when my wife and I arrive there vineyards are being planted every everywhere and they're putting in irrigation, their new concept. If you put in irrigation, you get the vines into production sooner, um, so you can start paying back you know, these investors sooner, you get bigger crops. Um, it's more consistent in terms of crop load and everything. And, and so um, irrigation is born. And what happened concomitant with that, keep in mind, now going back to my days doing research at UC Berkeley, I'm in a photosynthesis lab. So I know something about photosynthesis. And what I know from actual research that I did is the only thing that a leaf produces that it sends to the rest of the plant is sugar. And it sends it in the form of sucrose, which is what you know as table sugar, which is a glucose and a fructose tied together. Sends it down through the system to the fruit and to the roots. And when the sugar gets here to the fruit, um, as it goes into the berry, there's a little, um, so it's sucrose, so it's these things go like this. There's a, 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 um, an, an enzyme, which used to be called invertase, and it's got another name now, but I'm old school. We'll call it invertase. And as that sugar goes through the membrane into the grape, the invertase chops it into glucose and fructose, which are known as grape sugars. Mm -hmm. So you take a, take a grape and it's pretty much equal quantities of glucose and fructose. Um, what that does is that allows all this sugar to accumulate in the grape because um, the sucrose sees a gradient into the grape because there's no, there's no sucrose on this side of that membrane. And so the sucrose goes through gets cleaved and so it just keeps going through and that's what allows these incredible um, sugar quantities to get um, 
accumulated in the grape. And when you irrigate, a couple of things happen. The, you get more stomata on the bottom of the leaf, which is the pores. Mm -hmm. for, and in a dry farm grape like this, when it gets hot, um, those stomata close up too expensive for the vine because it's losing water by transpiration at the same time it's taking in carbon dioxide. So if it gets hot, it becomes too expensive, those stomata close down. An irrigated vine, because it's got all this moisture, has more stomata and they don't tend to close up as readily as they do on a dry farm grape. So what you end up with is a whole lot of sugar being produced here. And the sugar flows down and into the grapes. And I knew that from research that I had done because I, when I was at, at Berkeley, just by chance with this guy from Germany, we did this experiment where we took a leaf, put it in a chamber, put aluminum foil all the way around it except for one little hole, illuminated it, and, and you know for various periods of time we had different leaves, took out the leaves, cut them up to see, and then chromatographed them to mm -hmm. find all the components that were now radioactive to see what was in that leaf and what was heading down the, heading down the petiole here um, in the vascular system. And what we found was in that illuminated area, it was everything that you could imagine. I mean, you look at the chromatogram and it was like 100 different compounds. As soon as you got outside the illuminated area, there was one big spot on the paper and we knew what that was, it was sucrose. So all of that other metabolism is staying inside the cells of the leaf fueling their metabolism, what they're exporting solely is sucrose. So you add all this water to the vineyard and get all these huge leaf canopies and all you're really doing is producing a whole lot of sugar. So what started happening in California, those wines that got all the accolades were 12, 12 and a half percent alcohol. All of a sudden, alcohols in California wine started going up and up and up because the alcohol that you get in the wine is concomitant with how much sugar is in the grape that goes in there. For Pinot Noir, I'm not sure about Cabernet, but for Pinot Noir, it takes about 100 days from the time you finish bloom until they're ripe. It doesn't matter how much sugar is in there. That's, that's a whole other issue. It takes about 100 days physiologically for those things to ripen. So if you have an irrigated vine, at this point in the process, you're going to have much more sugar in there than you are in a dry farm vine. And so we get routinely 12 and a half, 13 percent alcohols. Guys that are irrigating are getting 14, 15, 16 percent alcohols. Um, and so, you know, kind of end of story. At that point, I just, I just went. We're, we're not only going dry farm, but as I saw irrigation in the 80s start happening here, I decided I needed to start having an impact on what was going on and try to, as much as possible, get a conversation going and try to turn back the, where it was going. And so I contacted some other people who were dry farmed, and um, they all wanted to be part of the group, so we formed this thing called the Deep Roots Coalition with small letters because it stands for DRC, and Domain Romani Conti is capital D, capital R, capital C. So we were, you know, we were, and Domain Romani Conti has never sued us or anything over it, so I think we're probably okay. I they think they probably see the tongue in cheek of the whole thing. Plus, I'm sure philosophically they would totally agree with what we're about is pushing dry farming. Um, so that's, 
that's what that's about. We now have two dozen members and there will be more and um, in my considered opinion the best wines coming out of Oregon are being made by all these members of the Deep Roots Coalition. So. What do you hope the main accomplishment of the coalition is? Is it purely education and, and, and conversion? Oh. Both, both of the above. I mean by educating and getting consumers to ask questions then you have influence on the producers and what it is that, that they're doing in the vineyard. Um, we are getting ready, probably not the end of the year, but the first part of next year. We're going to go to the belly of the beast. We're going to do um, a big uh, Deep Roots Coalition tasting in San Francisco. We figured we should go down there because when I've gone down and done tastings for sommeliers at restaurants with the wines, and they're used to domestic wines being 14 to 16 percent alcohol, and they see the stuff that I'm pouring, and they look at the label, and they go, 12 and a half? Is this real? <laughs> you know, and then I explain to them what the deal is, and they're really excited about that. So I'm thinking, and there are producers in California who are still using dry farm grapes, and we're going to try to get, I, one of them's already committed to being part of it, and we're going to try to get some other ones from California to be part of it as well. So, you know, get some press. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the Deep Roots Coalition is about um, education and it's also about marketing. And, um, and so, you know, the idea is to help the wineries that are members of it, who I think are doing it right mm -hmm. in the vineyard, to sell their wines. Do you have any intention of expanding outside of the U.S.? Is it something you would like to see done internationally? <laughs> Man, all I'm thinking about right now is outside of Oregon. <laughs> if we can get some California wineries to sign on to this, I would be, you know, be a happy boy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm more, I'm more thinking locally than, than anything else. Sure. Yeah. So what's your favorite part of working in the vineyard? Ah, being on the tractor. Absolutely, being on the tractor. It's real hard to get the tractor away from me, but we have two tractors now, so, you know, I divvy it up. And my wife really likes the tractor, so our employees don't get on the tractors as much as they would like to because, you know, she gets on it sometimes. But, yeah, being on the tractor for sure. I mean, there's a lot of manual labor out here that, you know, is like pulling leaves. Um, you know, is tough and, uh, you know, moving wires, um, in fact, that one's tough, moving wires to get the canopy to go like this because it all wants to go down. Um, but at the end of the day, after you do it, it always feels really good to look back and go, oh, yeah, this is great. The grapes are exposed now for getting sprayed. The canopy's up there. So it's always about, about every two weeks we have to put a spray on. Uh, usually, since we're farm organically, it's usually sulfur. Um, there are a few other things that we put on there that are organic as well. Um, and it's about getting it ready for that spray. So, you know, which is important because this is a climate that, Tends to promote mildew sure. and in the fall botrytis. Sure. So, um, but yeah, that and then pruning in the wintertime. Uh, my wife and I do a lot of the pruning ourselves because there's something about just being out here in the wintertime and it's quiet and you know, you're out here making cuts in the vine and it's, it's, you're launching the next vintage. It's the beginning. You know, you're in January of 2018 and you're already making decisions that are going to affect 
the crop that you get in September, October of 2018. And so it's kind of a vote um, for uh, positive thinking, you know, that you're actually going to get to that point and, you know, and get, get fruit to pick. But pruning, pruning is really nice. Um, it can be cold and wet and miserable. And when we built this house over here, one of the things my wife insisted on, and in retrospect, it was a great decision, was putting in a sauna. And so, um, you know, we'll start looking at our clocks, knowing, okay, sauna, it's not the end of pruning, sauna time's like in two hours, sauna time's in an hour, you know. And, and then we come out of here and we're like in the sauna. It's, it's great. When you found this location, um, what was it that drew you to it in particular? And, and have you found any surprises? Was there anything that you were not expecting with the, the terroir here? Um, South-facing, perfect south-facing slope, which is what you want. Uh, jory soil, which is what I wanted at the time. Um, there was a well on the property, a proven well, which is an issue in all of these hills that I could then um, you know, use for a winery here. Um, the biggest surprise has been that jory soil is not just jory soil. This is all old, the remnants of old lava flows, broken down basalt, if you will. And turns out that this um, particular area, and we didn't know at the time, was part of the last lava flow to come across Oregon, and it's called the Ginkgo Flow. And this little area around here is that soil, and this is very different soil from Abbey Ridge. This is some of the reddest soil around. It's highest in iron and high in titanium, whatever that means. But the makeup of the, of the soil is different, and, um, and it dries out very, very quickly. And the vigor of the vines here is much lower than it is up at a place like Abbey Ridge. Um, for whatever reason, you know, vagaries of differences in the soil. So, yeah, I guess that's been kind of a learning experience, but you just kind of adapt with what you got. Sure. So let's broaden out a little bit and talk about the industry more at large. Uh -huh. um, in addition to just size, mm -hmm. what, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since you've joined it? What, big how, big it wineries. Big wineries. Um, when I started out, my thing about three to four thousand cases a year was in the norm, maybe slightly on the small side, but I would say m there were not very many wineries that were over eight thousand cases or mm -hmm. so. So, you know, mostly dominated by very small wineries and that has really changed, I think particularly in the last ten years, mm -hmm. um, that there are now a lot of of really large, you know, big players in it. Um, that has necessarily changed the playing field because the type of wines that they make are different. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, necessarily so. Um, sometimes the wines are, 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 you know, are decent and sometimes they're not so great. It just kind of, just kind of depends, you know, luck of the draw. Um, but I think that's a bit of a challenge sometimes, particularly marketing out of state. In Portland, it's not a problem because I'm pretty well known in Portland mm -hmm. and the wines sell. Um, out of state, it's, it's an issue because a lot of times people's only um, experience with Oregon wine may be some really large wineries that are not making the same kind of wine that, that we're making here. 
So that, that, that's probably been the biggest one. The other one uh, that goes with that is when we started the winery, um, at that point there was um, a grape tax that was put on everything, $25 a ton, and that was to fund research and marketing. Um, well, now you have this big marketing dollars there, and then the question is, how do you, how do you divide that up? Because obviously the marketing needs of a big winery are different from the marketing needs of, uh, of, a, of a small winery. And so I think that's, it's not so much a, a problem for me because we're such a small winery and I sell 80% of what I make in Portland that I'm not part of that so much. Um, but I think it's a problem for the industry and certainly if the Deep Roots Coalition wants to market out of state like in San Francisco, um, we're gonna have a really hard time getting any money out of that marketing fund. I would love to get money out of the marketing funds because there are two dozen of us who are part of it, but now, you know, especially volume-wise compared to the rest, um, I'm sure the big wineries would shut us down from doing that because we're also talking about something that they're committed to, which is irrigating all their fucking vines. So, <laughs> you know, you don't have to edit that out either. <laughs> um, so what do you want to see happen here at Cameron in the next, say, 10 or 15 years? <laughs> Um, you know, I'm in, um, I would say I am in a sense um, retirement mode. I mean, not withdrawing from the winery, but um, I've, you know, been the winemaker here for throughout the history of this thing, but I've given that over to Tom Savilli, and we work together on all the blends and, and doing that, but but backing away from that. I think next would be a guy that does more hands-on um, in terms of helping run the vineyard. Um, but, you know, size-wise, I think we've made all of our decisions on planting and, you know, dealing with that. We do have a phylloxa area down in the bottom of the Colectric Rouge that we are, you know, replanting as the vines go down. Um, that has to be dealt with, you know, so eventually, um, you know, a lot of these vines will be replaced because of, because of that. Sure. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think that three to 4,000 cases is kind of sacrosanct. Sure. And the size of the vineyard here and the, and the vineyard up at Abbey Ridge, that's over 90% of our fruit comes from those two vineyards. And so uh, he's not planning on changing anything. I'm not really planning on changing anything down here. So I, I think it, for the most part, kind of goes forward the way it is. Sure. You know, unless my kids decide to make the fatal mistake of expanding production. <laughs> and they've heard me for enough years, I doubt they'll do that, but, you know. What about the Oregon wine industry in general? What do you see happening over the next decade? Boy, that's an impossible one to predict. Um, I'm sure it will continue to be a mix of large and small wineries. Um, unlike California, which is dominated more by varieties like Cabernet um, and their, their type of Chardonnay, um, I think Oregon, because it's Pinot Noir, you know, and Chardonnay and some other varieties to a lesser extent, um, the best of those wines have to be made in small facilities. That, that's just the way it is. There's a lot of hand labor that goes into making really high-end Pinot Noir, both in the vineyard and in the cellar. I don't, I don't, you can't change that equation. Sure. And, and so if you look at Burgundy, 
Um, there are lots of small producers our size in Burgundy that are making it, that are doing fine, and there are the big negociants who are there as well. Um, I, you'll see that kind of breakout here. So I think where we're headed right now is kind of what, what you see right now. There's going to be this split. Um, that, that split between um, large wineries and small wineries. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think you'll continue to see that. And, and there's a place for both of them. Um, I think particularly if the large wineries are selling their wine at significantly lower prices, which means you, you appeal to a broader market, um, there's a place for that. that. That's important. Is it still a small industry today? Has it grown to be a big industry yet? I think it's going to be a, a pretty big industry, yeah. Um, I mean, I honestly, I don't know half of the, and, and actually, it's probably, I know less than half of the labels that are out there. Mm -hmm. you, you, you could probably bring me 10 labels, and I may know a few of them. Um, you know, and when I started, there were 15 of us or something, and now they're, what, 700 and something. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a completely different different scenario now than, than it was and um, and I think uh, what is it is becoming is the people that I know and see and tend to associate with tend to be um, kind of Dundee, Ribbon Ridge, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. more in the in the smaller community because that's that's as much as I can manage <laughs> to, to get out to. So yeah. Sure. Whereas, you know, back in the beginning, I knew people up and down the Willamette Valley because there weren't very many of us. Now, you know, that's, it's, it's a different, different scene. What about sort of the, we always hear about the core value of sort of collaboration and, and community and neighborliness. Has that changed? Um, I, I think to some extent, but you know, um, uh, talking about grapes and, and problems going on in the vineyards and what you're doing and where you're going, I think it's still really um, pretty cordial. And like within this group of the Deep Roots Coalition, we just did a marketing thing back in D.C. and Virginia. And there were five of us and we're all, you know, working together and, and pitching each other's wines. And, and that's, I think that's one of the nice things about the wine industry in general, and it's not unique to Oregon. I think it's the wine industry in general. I remember years ago in California, my wife was reminding me this, when, um, God, it was some big, oh, it was Coca-Cola, bought into, um, I think it was maybe Almaden. It was a big winery, and they started doing ads going after other big wineries specifically like you know these consumers said oh our wine is better than those guys wines taylor california i think it was called um was the name of it and maybe they were going after almaden I, I don't remember i'm probably getting it mixed up but at any rate the industry in general came down on coca-cola and what they were doing they were going we don't we don't do that we don't we don't pick out other wineries, even though we may be competing with them, and degrade them on ads. We don't do that. And, and, I, and I think that that is kind of the feel of it. That's just not the way the wine industry works. We're kind of um, a family. And the big guys, yeah, you know, I can complain about things that they're doing, irrigation and, you know, using Dijon clones <laughs> and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, that's an in-house discussion mm -hmm. more than anything else. 
um, and not singling out any, you know, individual wineries out there to, um, you know, to, to call down. Sure. Um, yeah. So. What advice would you have someone who wanted to pursue a career in wine? Oh man, um, I feel really bad for a lot of young people trying to get into this because it's gotten super expensive. When I bought this piece of property, when we bought this piece of property, uh, it was 10 acres and it cost us $50,000, so $5,000 an acre. This stuff has now been assessed land around here without any grapes on it at $50,000 an acre. So if you're young, trying to get something started around here is, it's impossible. Um, I guess my advice to young people getting into it is find a vineyard that's going, and there are lots of independent vineyards, um, get experience, um, and try to find somebody to partner up with. And because you'll do them a favor, because they'll have a ready source mm -hmm. uh, for their fruit to go to, and you'll do yourself a favor because you've got an extant vineyard that you can, you can go with. Sure. Um, I, and I think that would be the most valuable advice I would give, because I know how expensive it is and how hard it is to, to, to get something going. You know, and yet the industry needs the life of this industry, the young people who are coming up through it. They're the ones with the fresh ideas and the enthusiasm, and um, and they're super important. And I, you know, you could say that about any business, and I happen to know this one. But um, it's it's like young people are the they're the lifeblood of, of any of these businesses, and they need to be encouraged. So would you do it all over again? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I, you know, could start over again and and be more cognizant of the mistakes that I made, um, you know, correct some things, I would definitely do that. But ironically, I don't think I would correct that much. I, I think, um, you know, by happy circumstances of luck and, and when I showed up here, um, I, you know, I, think, I think I've kind of done okay. I would have not planted own rooted, for example, way back then that wasn't phylloxera, but you knew it was going to get here eventually. Sure. Um, but, you know, there are, you know, relatively, relatively few things I think I would change. Sure. Can you guys hear the swallows overhead? They're, they're out like mad and they're getting ready to head south to Mexico. Um, they are starting to call to the young who are in the boxes because they need them to jump out of the boxes and fledge. And I think that's what you're starting to hear. All these, they they come and they do, they do a um, a group effort um, in order to get the young to. Really? Yeah, and I, I see them all circling around here, and I have a feeling that's that's what you're starting to witness. And my wife actually started crying the other day because we came out and she thought that they had already fledged and left because we didn't see any of them around, and she started crying that they had. They had left and they won't be back until next March. And, and it is, it's really sad. They're, they're like, there's such a presence here for about four months. And then all of a sudden, at some point in early July, usually all of a sudden one day, they're gone. And they're headed south to Central America. And, um, and they'll be back, you know, their babies will be back. It started out with one nesting pair here. And now we have boxes around the vineyard and we have probably six, seven different nesting pairs here 
So amazing. Yeah. We saw we saw one of the boxes earlier with the Oh up on the yeah, patio. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the two little babies with their heads say they're trying to get them to jump out. Because they're they're ready. They're almost ready. They stick their heads way out and it, maybe it'll happen while you're here. <laughs> it's pretty good. See they're they're calling. They're going, come on, come on. So all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? I think I have talked entirely long enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. All your thoughts and all your opinions and memories. And uh, we'll go ahead and stop the recording. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.